Church history, the Gnostics. We continue. So the beauty of the gospel and the early church is that as the church continued to grow, uh, there were both positive and negatives by the infiltrating Gentile cultures. Now, obviously, the Jews mostly rejected the gospel of Christ, and thus the gospel spread to Gentiles, meaning anyone not a Jew. So you could have Egyptians, you could have uh, Palestinians, you could have Greeks, Romans, you could have um, all sorts, you know, you just start to get into that empire. You could get all sorts of different cultures and ethnic backgrounds mixed into Christianity. Now, obviously, mostly Roman and Greeks, as that's where it first began to boom. So positively, the varieties of people enriched the church and gave witness to the universality um, of the message. So it's like you walked into a church and you could possibly see multiple cultures, probably did, and thus that was a very beautiful thing. But negatively resulted in widely differing interpretations of that message. You give certain aspects of the word of God to an American and you give them to a European and we read them differently. You give that same reference of word to a, a Ghanaian, and he'll read it differently. Because we can't help but somewhat mix our culture into the context of the word of God. It's kind of, it's hard to not do that. And so that's why it's so important to look at the history of the context of the word of God before you just throw your current situation into the word. Um, you need to know the context, the history, before you do that um, or even try to make that comparison. Um, so at this point, Christianity would better be described as Christianities, um, being there was a plurality of Christianity. Uh, and that's the same with today, but this is where it began. Um, so would the, and, and these questions begin to come up. Would the varying interpretations um, prove to be valid and acceptable? Um, were they a threat to genuine or true Christianity? And so continuing with the variety of backgrounds, um, you begin to have syncretism, which is where you sync, right? Use that word sync. You sync your personal background, your culture, your upbringing, your views, and you sync it with the word of God. So um, it was infiltrating Christianity at an alarming rate. And so that is something that is still happening. It still happens. You, you merge your background, your history, your knowledge, your understanding, your culture, your America into the Word of God when it's not actually there, right? And so there's nothing biblically about America. If you think there is, then you're probably LDS, right? <laughs> right? That's the Christ testimony in the Americas. Uh, the Bible we read doesn't have anything to do with America. Thus, when we read it and we put our current culture into it, that's not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing, but it can lead to bad thinking. It can lead to bad doctrine. It can lead to bad understanding. And thus, that's what people were doing. is They were, they were taking their cultural upbringings. Now, syncretism isn't always bad. Another example of this is, is, is if a missionary goes down to, say, a developing country where they've never heard of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they do have this like supreme being in their mind. There is like a God. Like the Native Americans believe the sun was God and he created the earth and he was looking down on it and blah blah blah. And, right? And so it's, syncretism could be used in a positive way to say, I go into this culture and this is their view of God. They think God is this all-powerful guy who judges you and if you don't do right you're going to fall sick and this and that and this and that. 
And you realize, I'm like, hey, that's, some of that's kind of true about God. Maybe he is all-powerful, but this is what he does. He is all-powerful, but he literally sent his son in flesh to die for your sins. And thus, if you believe in him, you are justified. And now, you don't have to be punished and eternally put into hell or torment. And so syncretism can be used in a positive way to witness to people in their culture using things that they already know and understand. Um, Paul did similar things when he went into the Greek um, Colosseums and they were talking about their gods. He's like, all these gods, whatever, they're little g-gods. But there is an unknown god, a god that you guys can't even craft an idol to because he's so much bigger than your human minds can understand. Um, He is the supreme god, right? And so he was coming in and saying, your little gods, they're nothing to the supreme god. Because there, you can get into arguments about these little gods, the Greek gods. These, There's actually a lot of room to believe that gods from other religions are, in fact, fallen angels or demons. There's a lot of room to believe that. If you study that out, um, that's actually where I would lean on a lot of uh, a false religions' gods. Like the Kundalini spirit is the Holy Spirit of Hinduism, right? And their, their, their main god is Rama, right? And to me, Kundalini is a demon, but it's their Holy Spirit, which imitates our Holy Spirit to an extent. And so thus, you know, that's a scary thing. You, you know, you, you study Kundalini and you do get worried. You're like, well, I don't want to do anything that looks like Kundalini because, you know, the Holy Spirit is different than Kundalini. And thus we be careful. <laughs> we be very careful. Um, syncretism also, like... You could start to get into the idea of culture, culture and merging your religion versus merging cultural ideas. And that's where you get things like Christian yoga. It's not, it doesn't make sense. It's not real. It, it's not something that Christians should do. But people justify it and start to create these kind of doctrines to work around how it's acceptable because of the gospel. And it's acceptable because it's just taking something for your body. And we're going to get into some more of the uh, Gnostic beliefs, and, and you'll see how it's kind of infiltrated the church today, or it continues to infiltrate the church today. Um, thus, this is when Orthodox Christianity arose. So when I say Orthodox, which I'm going to say a lot because it's important to know Orthodox Christianity, that means ta- uh, tried, tested, proven. It, it's, it's what is mainstream, mainline, didn't get discovered 8,000 years later after, you know, we're not even there yet, 800 years later after um, Jesus. It's what's been it's what has always been. So they, they affirm Jewish heritage, you know, uh, Christianity, an offshoot of Judaism. They affirm the doctrine of creation with God, Adam, and Eve. Um, and that's actually one where there's actually Christians today that don't believe in the doctrine of creation. Uh, that's one that's kind of weird. Um, there's a lot of people that believe Moses wrote Genesis uh, to be more just like an allegory, a story what he believed happened in the beginning, and it was actually kind of all relatively made up. Now, does this mean someone's damned because they believe that? I don't think it's that heretical, but just so you know, that, like C.S. Lewis believed that, right? That's one of those weird beliefs that C.S. Lewis held to. And so there's actually some people that don't believe in the literal Adam and Eve creation, Garden of Eden, God, that whole situation. They believe it was just a story. Does does the gap, gap theory fall into that? Um, also. A little, a little, yeah. Um, it's not in my slides, but the gap theory is trying to take what the culture says is an old word, old earth, mm-hmm. and trying to find somewhere in scripture where we can justify it is an old earth. Yeah, like, 
kind of stores and you get to be billions of years old. Yeah, like exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, and so that's why you can see where syncretism isn't always bad. I actually talked to Jared a little bit about this, and it's like, if this is one thing that you just can't hurdle, like you, you absolutely die hard, absolutely, and this isn't the situation, but you believe absolutely that this earth is old. You, you do not believe it's a young earth. And that is the one thing going to hold you back from Jesus. Don't let it hold you back from Jesus. There's plenty of Christians that believe in the gap theory. Yep. And so is it damning? No, it's not. It's just the belief that there was a gap in time, mm. unknown time, and that could have been billions of years, right? And so, yeah, doctrine of creation. The gap theory, I would say, is even less worrisome than just thinking all of Genesis is fairy tale, right? Because there, there are people that, like I said, C.S. Lewis believed that Genesis was written by Moses kind of as... A fairy tale, like a and Job. Same thing with Job, right? People believe Job was actually just a story, and not a literal situation. It was more like a parable or like a, an example, and it wasn't. And Patricia's like, what? Yeah, there's actually a lot more people believe that about Job than Genesis. Genesis has always been more orthodox to believe is literal, historical, accurate because of the lineages. Um, whereas Job is is actually really 50-50. There's plenty of people that think Job is is simply just a story that somebody wrote to demonstrate God's power and God's sovereignty in situations. Um, and I actually wouldn't die on any hill with Job. I, I, either way, it's in the Word of God, and either way, we have to esteem it as such. Uh, positive value of the created world. Now, the reason this is important is because Gnostics, the, the saying is, matter doesn't matter, right? And so anything that matter, all the matter, all the things, the physical things, they don't matter. In fact, they're vile and evil. And at best case, they don't matter. Um, and so, Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, began to come out and said, no, there is value in this created world. Right? There, there is value in it. There is a reason God made Adam and he made Eve and he gave us this earth. Um, whereas Gnostics would say there is no, either everything is evil or they would say matter doesn't matter. Um, and we're, we're going to get into some of the Gnostic beliefs of that time. God rules over all of history. Um, so there was a lot of Gnostics that came in, and they, this is where modalism, I believe, started to come into theology or into Christianity. So modalism, the easiest way to understand it, uh, it has been written off by heresy, by Orthodox Christianity. Uh, modalism is the belief that God has different modes. That's the easiest way to understand it. So he just flips the switch, and now he's in Jesus Christ mode. He flips the switch, and now he's in Holy Spirit mode, right? And so the belief is the Old Covenant God switched his mode and became Jesus, and then he had to leave so he could switch his mode and become, come down as the Holy Spirit and indwell us. And so with that theology, it's, it's most Orthodox Christianity label that heresy, and they consider it damning. Um, the reason that is concerning is because that is something Stephen Burdick seems to teach, is modalism. Okay? So something to keep in mind like I said, I, I actually vouched for Stephen Burdick from the pulpit last week, and I said, you know, I think he's still doing some things, and he has a positive message. But when we get into Sunday school, I can be a little more frank with you guys. There are some things that are a little worrisome when you actually dig deep, um, and that is modalism is one of them. And I don't know if it's damning, but Orthodox Christianity does think it's damning. I can see where they um, can get that. Because oh, yeah. Jesus actually said, I must leave so the helper can come. Mm -hmm. So that could be that switch that they're talking yeah. about. Yeah, but 
it, it's because you even look at the word Trinity, right? And the Trinity is never found in the Word of God. But even through Ephesians, when we go through Ephesians, Paul consistently writes of a Trinitarian structure. You know, thanks God the Father, praises Jesus Christ for His message and what He accomplished, and then said, "Continue in the Spirit." And so, the word Trinity isn't in the Word of God, but there is a doctrine called the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Which goes against modalism. It says there's God the Father, there's Jesus Christ, there's the Holy Spirit. They are not each other, but they are God. And there's nothing else to compare it to. Um, so you even ask people, they say, well, compare, compare God to an egg. You've got the eggshell, the white, and the yolk. People would argue that's modalism. Because they would argue that's still not a good enough representation of God. Because though they're three in one, it, needless to say, Orthodox Christianity, they don't like when you compare the Trinity to any earthly thing because they don't think there's any earthly thing that can be compared to um, God. Uh, in fact, the better example of modalism would be the people, and Jared actually, he told me that he was told this. Um, what is it? It's where, it's about water. So there's like water, there's condensation, and, and ice. or water, vapor, ice. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, so people would argue that's modalism because it's different stages or forms of water. Um, but they're not, you know, and so that's where you get, it's like, is it damning? Is it absolutely heretical? I won't go that far, but Orthodox Christianity does say it is. Um, so positive value in the world, God rules all of, all of history. And so a lot of Gnostics actually began to teach that God was a bad God and Jesus came and kind of gave us a good God, right? Um, resurrection of the body. So that, the reason this was so important is because Gnostics believed no matter mattered, and the ultimate escape, because we were spiritual beings, was to die and to be re-enlightened and, and reconnect with spirituality, essentially. Um, and so Orthodox Christianity began to place a strong emphasis on that thousand-year reign of Christ and how we would be resurrected. Right? And so when people went to be martyred, they said, you'll kill me, you'll spread my body parts across the world, but I'll be brought back together and I'll be brought back to life. Um, and so you have that. Uh, and then they, they often taught a coming final reign of God, and that's the millennial, year, year, uh, the millennial year reign. Now, you get into today, and there's people that believe in amillennialism, uh, which some people view as weird. In fact, I found out, uh, which shocked me, needless to say, but I found out uh, John Mark's church started because their pastor believed in amillennialism, which is the belief that there is no, it's awe, like atheist, like atheist, no the, no God. So amillennial means no millennial. And so what they believe is that Christ, there wasn't a literal thousand year reign of Christ over the earth. Rather, there was a figurative year, uh, thousand year reign of Christ in which he is seated in the heavenly and ruling the earth through the Holy Spirit. And so there's actually a lot of amillennials now when I do my research that essentially, and they're usually charismatics wow. because they believe Christ is seated on high, the Holy Spirit is in us, and we are called to Christianize the world through the Holy Spirit. And so it's usually charismatics that have that belief. Now, I do not believe that is heretical personally at all. In fact, I think it's enticing because usually amillennials are very gung-ho about Christianizing the world. They're very like, no, we've been given the Spirit, we have been empowered with the Spirit, 
to Christianize the world, to make a difference, to change our culture, to change the world. Um, they even will quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? They say, Christians are called to conquer the world. And so I'm telling you guys this, uh, not because this is super relevant to this, but there are three uh, eschatology belief systems, and that's eschatology is the study of the end times. There's three. There's premillennial, which means you believe that the world's going to get worse and 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 worse, and then Christ will rapture us up, and then destruction. Premill is very America, very... It, it's been around for a while. It's John MacArthur's like baby, right? And so if you're pre-mill, you and John MacArthur have a good good dinner, right? You think the world's getting worse and worse and worse, and we're going to get raptured up. Um, most of our church, I was raised in pre-mill. Most of the church is pre-mill, I believe. I started studying it, um, and then there's on-mill, which is the belief there is no literal thousand-year reign of Christ, that he's currently reigning through the church, through the Holy Spirit, and that we are called to Christianize the world. And so all mills will ascend. They actually believe that the world is gradually going to get more and more better. They're better, right? And there might be drops, and there might be hardships, and, but eventually, maybe 10, 15,000 years down the road, we're only 2,000 years in, eventually we're going to Christianize the entire world because the Christian message, the gospel message, it's truth, it is light, it is the most important, best thing, and every human mind will eventually bow to Christ. And so, and then there's some disagreement, but once we've Christianized the entire world, the government's Christian, the culture's Christian, the entertainment's Christian, everything's Christianized, then some people disagree on this. This is actually more of a post-millennial, which is the third view. Christ will return, and then we'll have our literal thousand-year reign. So they're post-millennial, uh, which is like Jeff Durbin, Doug Wilson, those guys are post-mill. And they believe we are called to Christianize the world, Christianize the culture, Christianize politics, Christianize everything we can. That's why Jeff Durbin and Doug Wilson are so emphatic in politics, and they're so pro-life, and they're making some big steps. Because they believe we're on, we're on earth to Christianize the earth. you know. And so they actually believe, as we slowly, and Doug Wilson even said, well, what about this, and what about that? And he's like, I'm not saying there might not be 500 years of tribulation where Christians are martyred again. He's like, I'm not saying that. Maybe we need that to grow again. <laughs> like, you know, so he said, it's not about being stuck in 50 years or 100 years. How bad is it right now? He's like, it's about being long-sighted. And he said, you know, you might have 200 years where you're being persecuted and killed. But then, because of that, Christian church will rise up. And he actually said, like, for the first time in the history of ever, Africa is a Christian nation. And that it's actually more Christian than Muslim now. For the first time ever, you know, he talked about the revival occurring in the Middle East, how it's super underground because you'll get killed, the revival happening in China, the revival happening in Russia. These are all places where they're being persecuted and killed for their faith. He said, yeah, America looks like we're headed toward the end times because we're getting more and more persecuted. It's becoming more and more liberal. He said, but if you really look at it, the church is thriving in places where the culture hates them. And so he said, maybe America is headed that way to spark more Christians in the future, maybe 500 years down the road. Anyway, I digress. I can't spend too much time on that. Uh, there's the fourth one. There's three. The pan. Oh. <laughs> It'll pan out. It'll pan out in the end. That's, everyone needs to be a pan millennial at, the, at a minimum. Um, yeah. And so I'm actually studying them more closely. Uh, raised pre-mill. Most people are probably pre-mill. 
and there's some really good cases to be pre pre mill, but um, the people I actually look up to the most they're on mill, and then the other people I look up to second most usually are post mill. Uh, so uh, John MacArthur, I like John MacArthur a lot. I think he's a great teacher, um, and he's pre mill. So if you know, those are your examples. If you want to study like pre mill, go to MacArthur. Post mill, I would say go to Doug Wilson. He's in Idaho. And uh, if you're on mill, I would say go to Sam Storms. He's on mill. Uh, charismatics tend to be on mill because we're empowered now to Christianize, right? Charismatics are about the power, right? And so on mill is actually a very common charismatic lean. Um, I, when I'm studying it, it's mostly charismatics that are on mill. Pre mill are usually your doom and gloom, prep, get ready, let's run to the mountains kind of guys. Or John MacArthur, I'm going to lead a. Uh, I'm gonna preach from the jail cell. Like I'll preach to the people in the jail, and then if you want to kill me, just go ahead and kill me. I'm old enough anyway, right? That's John MacArthur's opinion. And then you've got post mill like Doug Wilson and Jeff Durbin, and they'll just get in your face, and they're they're getting into politics, and they're they make some waves. Um, all of these pro-life states that are slowly changing, that has so much to do with Doug Will or Jeff Durbin's their church, Apologia Church, their ministry, a voice for life. Um, they're making waves politically, right? So anyway, um, <laughs> Orthodox Christianity, though, did teach there would be a coming final reign of God. And that's why Amil would be kind of the odd one out, um, because that would go against the Orthodox early church belief. So you would actually rather be pre or post-mill, and I lean pre or post-mill as well, even though my personal favorite people are Amil. Um, thus, this began to create beautiful things, the creeds, right? The creeds of this is what we believe, right? The confessions. Um, creeds and confessions are beautiful, right? You, and I, I'm actually newish to creeds and confessions. I just bought the uh, 1689 confession, which is the Baptist confession, right? And uh, though I may not believe everything that they write in there, it's a good place to be like, okay, these are some, and then there's the Westminsters, there's the Heidelberg catechisms, there's all of these things began to come about because of Gnostics. Um, so the canonization of, canonization of scripture, I actually think I misspelled it in this slide, um, came about, and that's the completion of scripture. So in this time, when the Gnostics were arising, there's a Gnostic, I forget his name, it was in the video, not in the book, where he was actually, he was like one of the more, more well-known Gnostics, and he only had the Gospel of Luke, and 10 Paul letters, I don't know which 10 specifically. And then, I think that was it, and that was his Bible, right? He didn't include Matthew, Mark, John, he didn't include Acts, heaven forbid he would never include Revelation, right? So, and this is before scripture was completed and finalized and said this is the canon of scripture. And so he really kind of could take whichever letters he liked, gospels he preferred, and said this is the Bible. All those other ones, they were written, sure, whatever, but this is it, this is the true, genuine word of God. And the reason he did that is because Paul, when you study him, he hates the law and tells you never to go back to the law, and the law is terrible and miserable and never be Old Covenant ever again. And he liked to take that and begin to get a little cheap gracie and talk against the Old Covenant God. Um, and thus apostolic succession came. So can we trace your lineage as a teacher? So right with Ignatius and Polycarp being under John, who is a disciple of Christ himself, or Peter, who is the Pope of Rome, and thus all the popes of Rome. That's why when you talk to a, uh, like a Roman Catholic, they'll be like, we have 
the apostolic succession. Like we can trace our lineage all the way back to Peter, who was below Christ. They have kept track record of every pope, every leader, every pastor they've ever had throughout all time. Right? So that's impressive. Did they drift? Absolutely. We believe they did. But, so apostolic succession isn't everything, but if it's accepted within Orthodox Christianity, then it is important. And so to be able to say, these were the people that were discipled by this person, discipled by this person, discipled by this person, so thus their opinions on doctrines and their opinions on certain leaders was important and more important. And so that's why you get into um, heresy, right? And, and we're going to get into that, and we, we're i got to run through this. Um, and here we go, yeah. Thus, if the majority of the church in Orthodox Christianity and, you know, these apostolic succession leaders, if they rejected a particular teacher or person, they were labeled heretics. And that's when heretics came about. Right? So all the way back in the second century of the church, heretics came about. So Gnosticism, um, this movement was closer to destroying Christianity than any other movement there ever was. The Roman Catholic Church came church close too, <laughs> but the Gnosticism was incredibly close to destroying the church. Uh, it was both inside and outside the church. So there was Christians who were Gnostics, but there were also non-Christians who were Gnostics. Um, Gnostics accepted each other, right? So after 70 AD, many Jews, and 70 AD was the destruction of Jerusalem, many Jews became Gnostics, um, thus leading to Gnostic Judaism. So even Jews who were Jewish, Hebraic Jews, they became Gnostics. Um, particularly things they didn't agree with were divine creation and the goodness of a created world. And thus they began to also question God. Um, so there was a, this was the only history we had on the Gnostics up until 1945, but it's uh, heres heresiologists, right, was the only mention of Gnosticism, but it was in the defense against Gnostics. Um, so it's the heresies. And they were discovered... In 1945, though, they discovered more Gnostic letters and literature in Egypt. Um, and so some Gnostics, so if you want to study, like, if these are, you can read these. The Gospel of Thomas was written by a Gnostic. The Gospel of Truth was written by a Gnostic named Valentinus. The Gospel of Judas, which actually just came out in 2006, uh, finalized in English, all affirming... And so the thing is about all three of these Gospels that were written by Gnostics, they all affirmed the uh, defenses and the attacks within the heresiologists, right? And so we can actually prove that this heresy book that Christians wrote in defense against Gnostics was accurate because these Gnostic Gospels came out, and yeah, they were, they're going against each other. And so that's important to know. So the word Gnostic came from the word Gnosis in Greek, meaning knowledge. My next question was Gnostic means. Yeah, Gnostic means knowledge. It came from the Greek word knowledge, know, to know. Um, so Gnostics believe themselves to have possessed a special mystical knowledge reserved only for those who had true understanding. Knowledge which was the secret key to salvation. Um, and then here we go. I already mentioned this, but the largest indi indicator of a Gnostic was the belief that all matter is evil, and at best, it didn't matter. It wasn't real. It wasn't... Matter doesn't matter. Right? So humanity was, was trapped in a spirit, trapped or trapped in a being. We are spirits, some of us are spirits, trapped in a being, um, either individual or part of something bigger, and they just they taught that flesh was vile. Matter was vile. Matter was evil. And we're gonna get into some weird things they taught in the early church. 
They taught the world is not our true home, rather an exile, an obstacle to our salvation of spirit. Although rejected by Orthodox Christianity, still lingers to this day, which we mentioned earlier on, our reality was initially spiritual, and the supreme being, right, this is God, they actually, Gnostics do not think highly of God, God the Father. Um, initially, God the Father, the supreme being, wanted to create the spiritual kingdom, and he messed up some, at some point. And so he had an abortion. And the abortion was the earth. The abortion was physical people, right? And so Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, this world, everything that's here, this was a mistake. This was he was trying to create a spiritual kingdom because spirituality is the higher way, the better way. But because of some mistakes the supreme being made, he had to abort us to a physical world in order to make sure he weeded out the bad spiritual things he created, right? So weird, it's a weird belief, right? So the supreme being ruined everything and had to abort his spiritual babies in the world. Because it was built for the spirit, there was no, there were still bits and sparks of spirituality within people, and some of us were actually the good spiritual things. And thus, because we were the good spiritual things, we essentially were trapped in this carnal, and you can see where this Christianity kind of gets close, because we're dead in our sin, we're dead in our trespasses, our minds are futile, our minds are hostile to God. Right? So they can use, or Gnostics can still be Christians because, you know, kind of the way progressives can still consider them Christi themselves Christians. Um, there's enough kind of similarities that you can see that. But essentially they would argue, some of us have bits or sparks of spirituality in us, and if it's a good bitter spark, we need to set it free. But the reality is you're only going to be able to set it free if by chance you do have a good spirit in you. If you don't, then you won't. You'll never be able to receive this divine understanding because, well, you're just matter and you didn't have any of the good spirit in you. Um, and so it was very, very tricky. So um, this right here, what you just covered in the past minute and a half is the perfect definition of why Christians really have to be found have a strong foundation in what we believe. Yeah. Or we can really, really, someone can come on in to on the pulpit and really put us astray. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, I've got a couple more slides, and I want to let you guys talk a little bit, even though we're running way late on time. It's 10.51. That's always fast. Um because Gnosticism still, it's in the pulpit in, in Christianity still. Um, and I, I want you guys to see where it can be still in the church. Um, so liberation was often received when a spiritual messenger came to the world. This is kind of astral projectioning, new agey. Spiritual messengers came to reveal a divine truth. There's a lot of people, these, these people are clearly Gnostics. You'll see people, I have somebody who followed me on Instagram, would write me a lot. And he's like, I consider myself Christian, but I'm Christian plus. Like, Christian is one of the spiritualities that's a reality. But there's, I, it's too narrow-minded. It's too small. I've, exper I've experienced a spiritual messenger, and I've been in a lot, and it's very new-agey. Um, you get into psychedelics. You get into drugs. Drugs that put you on the same type of spiritual high that spirituality can, uh, very similar. And you get into some, yeah, you guys should study new age and and. Brian's like nodding, like, yeah. Demons are spiritual, be more specific. Yeah. 
<laughs> right? So you, know, you have that. You have to understand this reality. And I, I, I tried to preach this too a, a few weeks ago, or the last day sermon, I believe it was. But it's like, just because it's spiritual does not mean it's of God. Like, it does not mean it's something you should want. Like, there are so many spiritual things that are deceptive. They're crafty. They're meant to be crafty. They're meant to be deceptive. They're meant to pull you into strange doctrines, right? And so there are people that are messengers, but we would believe them as demons, right? Right. Well, they come as, as light. Angels of light, right? Moroni. Just name it a name, right? So it's like... There's a good chance Joseph Smith was visited by an angel of light. He didn't make it up. There's a good chance he was enlightened by a demon, <laughs> right? And so it's like we, we have to be so careful because Gnostics also taught that. Um, and then and something else that's really important to note is they began to teach uh, docetism. I'm going to slaughter that word. Um, yeah, I, I heard it like five times in the video I watched yesterday, but now I felt like there wasn't an S. Maybe the S is silent. I thought it, they said docetism. Um, that's how I want to say it. That's how I thought I heard it. But now I'm seeing an S in there, so I'm confused. Um, I think it's pronounced docetism. Um, but essentially, this was the heresy, that, the heresy that Jesus Christ wasn't actually there. And so they don't believe he actually had a physical birth because no matter matters, and all matters vile. So how could the true, genuine God of this earth come down in? So Gnostic Christians had this balance of saying, earth and matter is vile, so how did God come down and become Christ? And so essentially they said, he seemed present, but he wasn't. He was 100% spiritual. That was their belief. He seemed present, he seemed physically there, but he wasn't actually there. He was spiritual. Yeah, um, blood and... <laughs> Suffering. It's getting weird, right? Gnostics believe in some weird stuff. And then they also they also would sometimes teach that uh, Christ was just a very beautiful spirit trapped in a beam, but that God did come through him for a season. The Messiah came through him for a season as to kill him, but then he left him. And so there's actually also a teaching out there that Jesus Christ was not necessarily God, but God came into him for a season and then years. and left him. Three years? Well, um, it, it minus Based on min, minus yeah. that that time that he was at the temple, because there there's there's the the um, unknown years. You know, they had the birth. Then when he was twelve, he was at the temple. Okay. Yeah. And then there's the unknown. And then when he was thirty to thirty-three. That's probably yeah. You're probably okay. right. Um, um, yeah, I would say that's right. Um, many Gnostic teachers believe that many humans were without a spirit. Some of us didn't get one. We're just matter. <laughs> Thus, you were purely <laughs> carnal and unreachable, and there was no I point in, in right. So it's like if, if people are just carnal and given to their own way, they might not have a spirit on them. They might just be matter that's vile and evil and wicked. Um, but some humans were imprisoning the, these sparks, these spiritual things, and they needed to be set free and relearn gnosis, this true knowledge, right? So Gnostics um, had two responses to how should a Gnostic life be lived. And, and this is where, you know, you get kind of funny. Uh, I didn't put the technical terms in here because they were really not fun to say. Um, I try to put words in that I mostly know how to say. I thought I could, docetism is what I'm pretty sure it said, but... Um, because you are a spiritual being and you're trapped in a vinyl carnal being, body, you should put off as much and follow as many laws and regulations and discipline yourself so much 
as to kill your flesh, which is very Christian-ish, right? Um, because of your spiritual being. So there was one segment of Gnostics that taught that. And they would actually fast for days on end as to empower their spirit, their spark, right? They would put down their, their flesh. Sounds Christian-ish, right? Whereas others, Gnostics, they argued that the spirit is good, um, but the flesh isn't. And there was, no, there was no disciplining the flesh to be good because it wasn't good. It was vile. And the spirit was good. And so if you have true knowledge that your spirit is good, then just let your flesh be your flesh. Just let it kill itself. Let it do whatever it wants. Your spirit is still good because you have this true knowledge that the spirit in you isn't going to be tainted by the flesh, right? And so there's actually two main groups of people. Uh, many women actually became Gnostics because gender was evil um, in Gnostic belief because matter didn't matter. And so genders didn't matter whatsoever. And so actually many women became Gnostics because in the early church, women were not allowed to do as much, right? They were teaching their children at home, and they were, you know, and so women that were bored in church because they weren't given positions of authority all the time, uh, they, a lot of them became Gnostics. Like, well, this, this religion, I can be a Gnostic Christian, and gender doesn't matter. Gender is evil. Don't put me down because I'm a woman, right? And let's be honest, Gnosticism kind of has infiltrated the, the Americas today, where it's like, your identity, your truth of who you are in your mind is the most important thing. There is no truth about genders. There is no boy and girl. Right? That's, that's, getting, that's flirting with Gnosticism a little bit. Um, and so many women became Gnostics, and they actually were primarily led by women, um, which there were men too, but it was a very large women group. In the, the Christian Gnostics, specifically, was primarily women. Um, and so the first century carried women of authority, but perhaps the second century, um, this is why women probably were less and less often used to preach and teach and lead, is because they were, I mean, let's just put it plainly that the early church felt like women were just like Eve. They were constantly being deceived by Satan. That's essentially what the church taught. It's like, you know, and that's even what Paul wrote in his literature, and he wasn't even addressing Gnosticism because Gnosticism wasn't, if it was around, it was barely around, but it wasn't really a thing when Paul was writing his letters. So we can't read the Pauline letters and think about Gnosticism because it wasn't around yet. So when he wrote, like, was not the woman the one who was deceived, you know, he wasn't even talking about this, right? And so the church took literature like that that Paul wrote and took it as very literal and very needed to be addressed. Like, women are just so easily deceived. We need to not let them do anything, right? <laughs> the early church, obviously, there's a quote by, I think it's John Stott. I don't know. But it's essentially, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's John Stott. I posted on Instagram a few weeks ago. But it essentially says, like, every heresy has some truth within it, but it's just when, when they go too far, right? That's pretty much the truth of all heresies. And Paul Washer said something similar. He says, Baptists are reactionary, and they see a heresy, but they respond so far the other way that they tend to, teeter on heresy too. And he talked about how like you see the heresies laced into some hyper-Pentecostal movements, Baptists do, and so they go so far that they forget that a Christian walk is supernatural. A Christian walk is spiritual. That you do have the Holy Spirit. And he said, and that Baptists will even go as far as take making the Holy Spirit just a doctrine, something you know about, but not a reality in your life. Right? And so that's where Baptists can go too far and they get into heresy on the opposite side. And even Paul Washer said that. 
And so that, I believe, is what happened a little bit with the early church with women is they were like, okay, there's some truth about women, deceptive, submitting to husbands, submitting to elders. There's some truth there, but they went so far that I believe they borderlined on, on some heresy where they, they absolutely just shunned women for a good season. Right? So um, it's technically 11, but let's, let's, uh, let's, what Gnosticism do you guys see today in the church? Right. Yeah. I don't know about that question, but Gnosticism, when, when I'm out talking to people, so many people come up to me and say, I'm agnostic. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to talk about it. So am I Gnostic? I guess I am in a, in a sense. In a sense. That I have knowledge of the Bible, <laughs> I have knowledge of Jesus, so that, you know, makes me Gnostic. But. Well, you read in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 about this divine epiphany. That's what I call it. It's a supernatural revelation that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. I'm a sinner in need of saving. Yeah. So yeah, there is some truth placed into the Gnostic belief that we are spiritual beings and we do need to be awakened. Those are real things. Yeah. But they don't believe everyone's a spiritual being, whereas I would, right? And they believe that this gnosis is something you can achieve um, and that you need to do. Whereas Christians will typically say you're saved by Christ, but you're justified by faith in Christ. so next time anyway. somebody comes at me with, I'm agnostic, I can say, so am I. Or I'm not. <laughs> with uh, any, anything, um, and, and it sounds better in my head than probably going to come out. Um, anything that, that somebody is enticing you to want you to have, is going to give you first uh, the good stuff, or oh, okay, um, the 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 positive aspect of it. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, Ephesians one through uh, chapters one and three. Okay, yes, that lines up with the uh, agnostic, but that's where it draws the line. Mm-hmm. Anything past that, okay, does not line up, okay. Um, I, yeah. So, in in real world, okay, um, the government wants to give you fourteen hundred dollars per person in your family. That's the good thing, yeah. okay, but. What they're not telling you is you're going to pay back your $1,400 and everybody else's in the entire United States, okay? Um, So, I mean, they're going to tell you up to a certain point, but everything else past that, that's where the line ends, if that makes sense. I mean, um, if you take ibuprofen for your headache, it'll tell you you take X number of, of um, milligrams up to that point is good for you. Anything past that is not. So, yes, I agree. Um, we're all to a certain point agnostic up to that point. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're trying to learn and know more, right? And we're actually going to, I'm actually part of the Ephesians chapter 4, what we're going to go over today, talks about continuing in our learning. Um, and why Timothy and Titus and, and elders are called to teach, right? Um, 
no elder in the New Testament is called to prophetically give words. That's not a thing in the New Testament. It's not. Prophecy is a gift. Prophecy, the prophet is an office to build the church. But the qualification for an elder is to teach sound doctrine. Why? Because without sound doctrine, you're going to fall into Gnosticism. Uh, one area I think Gnosticism, just so you guys know, this is the one area where I see it most dominantly, is the word revelation should not be, you should not be scared of the word I received a revelation. Some people are. Some people are afraid of that word because they think you're, you're adding to scripture by your revelation. That's not what we mean when we say we received a revelation. Baptists um, and Presbyterians, they have a word called illumination. And illumination means you're reading scripture and the spirit illuminates something to you. And you're like, oh my gosh, I never understood this in this way. Whereas charismatics usually call that a revelation, right? Why? Why call it charismatic? What do you mean? I mean, like, why? Like, that makes sense to me that. Like the illumination thing, so like illumination, yeah. yeah I think I, I prefer illumination honestly because I, it's like illuminated, right? It makes sense to me. Like yeah, like that's how I would literally describe yeah. it when it happens. Is like it's literally like illumination. Hopefully, yeah. everyone in this room has had that experience yeah. where you're reading the scriptures and something's like, whoa! I've read this like ten times and I just all of a sudden I actually really get this now, right? Yep. Right, and that's an illumination. That's a spirit working through you to reveal something to you about scriptures. Now, if your illumination, now this is where I want you guys to be testing it and weary of it. If your illumination or revelation is not found in Orthodox Christianity ever, it's not taught in Orthodox Christianity, that's when you should challenge it and be like, okay, maybe this wasn't what I thought it was. Maybe I'm misunderstanding this. The place where I think Gnosticism gets into is it's about a, a, a knowing that nobody else has, Right? And so when I know something that nobody else knows, it becomes, I need to tell you about this. So I will not go this far, but many people believe a lot of prophets are Gnostics because they have divine knowledge that no one else has and that you need to hear it. And if you don't hear it, then you're doomed because you're going you're gonna to end up being an apostate and you're not going to vote for the right candidate. And right <laughs> Now, I won't go that far. But what I will say is we have to be very careful and that I believe any genuine charismatic who truly loves the gift of prophecy will say a prophetic word needs to line up with the word of God and it needs to line up with orthodox Christianity. If it's a new revelation, if it's this brand new thing that no, one, no other Christian has ever taught before, we need to probably cast it out. Right? And so, as my example, these spiritual trips to heaven where there's roller coasters and you get a ride in the, the tidal waves and there's cows driving... Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Do you, Calvin? That example? No. <laughs> like, that's, that's a Gnostic, okay? Um, so there are hyper-charismatic people that are Gnostics. So you just have to be very careful. Like, are they teaching something that is just, it's profound in Scripture and it's true? Then cool, that's awesome. That's, and you receive it and it's like, oh, I got this revelation too or this illumination too. Awesome. But if it's something that's like, this isn't really in Scripture and this is into something that's just not really in Orthodox Christianity either. That's when we cast it out, right? And so that's the importance of knowing Gnostics and knowing what they're teaching. Some of you guys, sorry, we're running late. The youth are running late, and we've got people showing up. You guys don't usually get Sunday school. You guys are getting a glimpse. <laughs> this might entice you guys to be like, oh, this sounds interesting. What are they talking about? Church history is important. The one, one, one last thing I will say that it was, wasn't in my slides, but one of the most important things about Gnostics to know is they do not value history. 
Because matter doesn't matter. And so history doesn't matter. All that matters is the current most new truth. Right? So progressive Christians would also probably be Gnostics. Because my truth is the most important truth. It's not the weathered and tested truth. It's my divine truth. Um, so Gnosticism is alive and active today. Be very careful. You want the weather proven history. Um, the best way to read is to read the word, to read a good, strong, biblically sound book, and to read history. That's I'm trying to read all three, a little bit of all three, right? So I'm trying to go through the word as I'm going through a good Bible book, as I'm going through history. And I think that's a good way to, to gear your learning. <laughs> Don't avoid history, and that's why we're getting into church history. Anyway, I will uh, pray, and then we'll start church. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity to discuss church history, the second century, the problems the church went through, these Gnostics that arose and, and led many people astray and almost defeated the church because they got to pick and choose whatever book of the Bible they wanted to use, and they got to pick and choose whatever revelation from the Word of God they wanted to, to adhere to and which ones they didn't want to adhere to. And God, we just thank you that we can live in this context, in this culture, where we do have the canon of Scripture. We have so many creeds and confessions to look back at to, back, back onto, God. We have so many uh, orthodox religious leaders throughout our church history that we can look at and glean from and, and understand, okay, as long as, you know, I'm not scaling too far off from either of these orthodox beliefs or these this orthodox doctrine, that I know I'm doing all right, God. But this early church, they had it hard where they didn't have the canonization of Scripture. They didn't have... Um, everything complete, or these creeds, or these confessions, or these defenses. That's why the apologists rose up. That's why these these uh, Christian leaders rose up, and they had to fight against it, God, because they saw for what it was. Father, we thank you um, to be able to learn these things, and, and to be able to grow in them, and, and, and apply them for today, that we may be uh, of sound judgment. In Jesus' name, amen.